Podcast Time Out for Mental Health is where we speak to sports figures, mental health experts, and leadership gurus about their experiences as it relates to mental health issues associated with depression, masculinity, and suicide. These sensitive topics are often swept under the rug, as detailed in my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, a simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Getting a handle on a man's masculinity will improve relationships, both personally and in the workplace. Everyone needs some support to ask for help when they feel off or a bit disoriented and foggy and don't know what is really going on with them. If they do not seek help, their behavior can turn dangerous, including alcoholism, drug and pill addiction, anger, fighting, violence, and in some cases, death by suicide. On Time Out for Mental Health, we want to uncover these issues so men and women can live a happy and healthy life, even though they do suffer from mental health issues. We are very fortunate to have our guest, Dr. Hugo Schwitzer, with us today. Hugo has many experiences to draw from as he studied history at the University of California, Berkeley, specializing in medieval history. He developed a passion for this subject after seeing a performance of Shakespeare's Richard II. He attended grad school at UCLA and was awarded his PhD in 1999. His doctoral dissertation was entitled Arms and the Bishop, the Anglo-Scottish War and the Northern Episcopate, 1296 to 1357, and dealt with the military role of the bishops of Durham and the archbishops of York during the wars of Scottish independence. Schweitzer joined the Pasadena City College faculty as an adjunct instructor in 1993, and was then soon hired to a tenure-track position in 1994. Over the course of the following two decades, he taught various history and gender studies courses at PCC, as well as co-taught an interdisciplinary humanities course alongside English and psychology to faculty members. Schweitzer is a prolific writer and has written on topics both public and deeply personal, stemming from his own curiosities as well as the inquisitiveness of others. He's written for such publications as Jezebel and The Atlantic, was a contributor to the Good Men Project, and co-authored Beauty Disrupted, a memoir biography of supermodel Carrie Otis, published in October 2011 by HarperCollins. That was Beauty Disrupted. Okay. Schweitzer became the subject of controversy when he disclosed to school administration and the general public his many affairs with his young female college students. In several blog posts and interviews, Hugo further admitted to an ongoing program with alcohol and drug abuse, a decades-long struggle with borderline personality disorder and bipolar depression, and a violent murder-suicide attempt with his ex-girlfriend while both were under the influence of narcotics in the summer of 1998. 
Hugo has been involved in a car crash causing an injury to a 25-year-old woman in 2013 near San Juan Batista, California. He apologized to the injured woman, made a full confession to law enforcement, and also stated, I am a danger to myself and others, and mitigating that danger is vital. He was then charged with felony DUI and released from San Benito County Jail on bail. He was reported to be in an extended treatment program in Malibu, California, focusing on mental illness and chemical dependencies. Hugo's been divorced. He has two beautiful children, Heloise Cirrus Raquel and David Anurin Nicola. We're honored that Dr. Hugo Schweitzer is sharing some of his time with us today. Hugo, how are you doing? Well, it's, uh, it, it, it's, it's strange to listen to that uh, recitation, isn't it? Um, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, but there it is. And I'm well. Uh, just come from, uh, I lead a very different life today. I uh, am not only clean and sober, I am also a crew member at Trader Joe's in Hermosa Beach, California. And I am no longer a professor at Pasadena City College, as uh, that little bio made clear. It's been over seven years since I left teaching, and uh, I just passed uh, seven years sober four days ago. So, congratulations! I just passed eight years last there week. So we're we're in good company. Well, that's quite a life so far. It really sounds thrilling. Let me frame our discussion, and then we can drill down into specifics. Your previous experiences are probably very different from your vision of your life as a teenager. In your words, can you share with us your story and how did you get here? Well, I mean, it, it, to make it succinct, I think that uh, I grew up in a very successful academic family. Both my parents uh, were college professors. Uh, my mother is a retired college professor. My father died 14 years ago after a long uh, and distinguished career teaching at UC Santa Barbara. And my brother is a professor in uh, England of Renaissance literature and has published five or six books uh, and is you know, very well regarded in its field. I grew up with a, a deep sense of fraudulence and a deep desire to prove myself to the world um, and a deep sense of imposter syndrome, feeling like I didn't belong. I went all the way to getting a PhD from UCLA and teaching for 20 years. And all the way through that, I remember uh, there was almost never a time where I didn't expect that at any moment someone was going to come along and say, this is all a terrible mistake. You should not have been admitted to Berkeley. You shouldn't have gotten into grad school at UCLA. Your dissertation was plagiarized. I mean, it wasn't plagiarized, but you know, I expected someone to say it. Uh, we made a mistake hiring you at the college, or we made a mistake giving you tenure. So I kept waiting for the other shoe to drop. Um, and you know, eventually, you keep waiting enough for the other shoe to drop, and it doesn't drop. You end up dropping the shoe. Yep. You, know, you end up forcing it. Uh, and you know, as you heard in, in, or as a listener might have heard in that in that bio, 
I basically blew up my life in 2013. Um, I had been leading a double life, uh, not only pretending to be sober when I wasn't sober, but I'd been having a series of affairs with my own students. I, I want to stress they were adult students and these were consensual relationships, but regardless, they were A, infidelity, and B, um, you know, against college policy. It was a firing offense. Uh, and rather than waiting to be caught, I was the one who admitted it because I couldn't stand the imposter syndrome any longer. Um, I basically blew up my life at the age of 46 because I was so exhausted with the inauthenticity of it. You know, and I, to put it in, in, in an, to encapsulate it, I just, I couldn't stand it any longer. Um, so I, I, I picked a very, uh, unfortunately for my family and everyone who around, a very embarrassing, very public, you know, very self-destructive way to blow up my, to get the transformation I needed. But I honestly believe in other ways, it was the only way to save my life. Sure. I happen to agree. I have went through something very similar, so I understand. But let me ask you, what drove you to such a high level of excellence in the studying of medieval studies, along with teaching women's studies while at Pasadena City College? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, first of all, I, I, you know, sometimes it, there isn't a very deep answer on the surface. But I really like history, you know, I mean, I really, I find it fascinating. Um, but beyond that, again, this sense of, of, of not really belonging um, that had begun in my own family. My, my brother, my mother, and my father were and are genuine intellectuals. And I never felt like one. So I had to learn the talk. I had to, I had to learn the language. Um, as you hear people say, fake it till you make it. Well, you know, I made it uh, and I needed a high degree of success. I needed to be a good teacher. I needed all that affirmation to remind me that, that I was succeeding in this thing, but it didn't change the fact that I still felt like I was playing a kind of dress up, that it wasn't, it wasn't really me. Um, and, you know, I mean, again, as I said, I did love teaching. I genuinely loved teaching. Uh, I miss it a lot. I genuinely loved history, but it's difficult for me to separate that healthy, you know, passion for teaching in history from this desperate addictive need for affirmation and validation. And in the end, the, the, the need for affirmation and validation was what drove my life. Yeah. Was there a central message that you tried to get across in your teaching? Well, I think, you know, in my teaching, I think that, the main thing that I wanted to get across was that the past is a resource. Mm. And I think this is, this is true on an individual level and it's true on a cultural and societal level too. Um, you've heard the saying that's attributed to Santayana, uh, those who forget history are doomed to repeat it. Um, as we say in 12-step in, in programs, uh, if you've forgotten your last drink, it wasn't your last drink. Uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to have another one. And if you forget the lessons of the human past, you are likely to repeat the worst mistakes. So 
you know, whether we're dealing with, you know, the fall of the Roman Republic, you know, 2100 years ago, or whether we're dealing with uh, the French Revolution or the coming of World War One, whatever it was, you know, I tried to draw these connections to make it relevant to people's lives, both the, the, the world in which they're living, but also their own personal lives. Um, because it's so darned important that we remember. Uh, and there's such strength that comes from remembering. I guess that's the main thing I wanted to convey. Great. So looking back in that academic world, where did you feel the most gratification for your work and, and why? I felt it in teaching. I mean, I think that it was, it was, I, I was never, you know, uh, really swept with doing research. I did research. I got, I, you know, I went to archives and I went to archives in, 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 in England, uh, you know, looking at, you know, 700 year old documents, uh, because that's what you do. And, I did it because it was expected, but I didn't really love it. I loved the teaching of it. Um, rather than say something original, I, I figured out pretty early on that I really was good at uh, telling people what other people had said, taking something that was maybe a difficult concept to understand and simplifying it and making it comprehensible. And I found that immensely gratifying. I love that. Excellent. Well, that's, you know, that's difficult work that you did, and I'm sure it was stressful at times. Did you ever get down on yourself and feel that the work at that level was just too challenging for you and you just felt overwhelmed? All the time. I mean, it was, it was, I was, you know, I basically, I spent, there's no question that over my 20 year teaching career, I became a better teacher. I know that. You know, I started teaching in 1993 and I lost my job in 2013. And if I, I don't have access to these tapes, but if I had a tape of myself in my first couple of years of teaching and a tape of myself in my last couple of years of teaching, I know that the lectures I was giving towards the end of my career were much better. I did get better. But what never got better was that, was that you know, that sense of anxiety, that sense of fraudulence. Um, I took that home with me. I took it everywhere with me. And I just, I wanted constant, constant affirmation that I was doing a good job, um, that I was okay. And yet, you know, it's, it's one thing when you're, you know, and it got worse over time, I think, because in that, this is an important issue for men as they age, that, you know, when I, was, when I was 26 and I started, when you're a 26-year-old rookie at something, you're expected to ask for affirmation and direction. You know, be, you're, you're kind of a cocky jerk if you don't ask for help. <laughs> you know, and, and, and there are a lot of people who want to mentor you. But, you know, when you get to be about 45 and you've been doing this for 20 years, you're expected to be the mentor. You know, there are younger people who need your affirmation. So, by God, you should have gotten over this need for constant validation. The problem is I never got over it. You know, I, I wanted it just as much in my mid-40s as I wanted it in my 20s as I wanted it in my teens. I, I sort of had this idea I would grow out of it, you know, that, that somehow I would get more, just the, sorry, irritating thing here on my college. I had this idea that 
I think it was something based on something a relative had said when I said that I was insecure when I was 19 or something. I said, well, you'll grow out of it. So I kept waiting. <laughs> you know, that, that, you know, grownups will figure out, they know everything. So yeah, I'm insecure, I'm 19, but it's because I'm 19. Or I'm insecure and I'm 26, it's because I'm 26. But it finally you get to be 45 and you, it's the exact same thing. You know, it's like, I'm 45, I'm middle-aged. Clearly, it's not just going to be something I grow out of. You know, it's, I've got to do something else. And what happened is I just kept it inside after a while. Mm. And of course, I led a double life too. I mean, there were, there were the drugs, the alcohol, the infidelity, and so on. You know, there's sort of this secret life as a way of dealing with all of that the stress. Yeah. So you knew you were, you were kind of spinning out. Yeah. Did, did, uh, did you ever think about asking for help? And why or why not? I did. And I think that, you know, the part of the problem was that I'd already asked for help so many times before. And I think this, this happens a lot to people who, you know, get into trouble early. I mean, I was hospitalized for the first time for a suicide attempt when I was 19. Mm -hmm. I went to my first rehab for alcohol and drugs when I was 21. And I would get time sober and I would relapse and I would have another suicide attempt and another breakdown. And every time I would try a new medication or, you know, go to more meetings or whatever it was. And everyone in my life would say, okay, now, now it's going to work, right? You know, your mother, my mother, my sisters, my brother would be like, you're okay now, right? Because of course they want you to be okay. So after a while, you figure like, well, I've used up all my opportunities for help. It's embarrassing after a while. So I felt like I'm supposed to have it together by now. You know, I, I, it was easier to get help when I was younger um, because I was so messed up and it was so obvious. But by my 40s, I had all these tools for, I had gotten really good at disguising it, and faking it, and it had become much harder to ask for help. Again, I was a father by now. Mm. I have kids. You know, I have all this life. I have this success. It was, it was impossible. I could tell other people to ask for help, but my whole story was based on, well, I needed a lot of help when I was young, but now I'm better. You know, I always, I, you know, I used to, I, I had a lot of, you know, I was a mentor to a lot of young women and a lot of them would start to tell you a story about their life with something like this. And they would say something like, you know, when I was younger, I used to have an eating disorder. And what I learned after a while is that 99 out of 100 times, if someone starts with, when I was younger, I used to have an eating disorder. What they're really saying is, I've got a raving fucking eating disorder, pardon my language, right now. It's happening right now, but they're not allowed to name it in the present. They can only name it as, well, in the past, I used to do this. And they can try and vent a little bit of that tension and that anxiety about what's going on now by framing it as something that used to happen to them. You know, you mentor enough teenagers, you get really used to that, that shtick. The problem was I was in my 40s and doing the same shtick. That's so true. That's so true. That's very uh, intuitive of you. Well, let's look at your nuclear family for a second while you were growing up as a kid. Where did you grow up, Hugo? Um, well, I grew up in one of the most beautiful places in the world, Carmel-by-the-Sea, California. Mm. One of my favorites. One of my favorites. 
And how would you characterize your father as a man? Was he tough? Ever, did he ever show love? Did he discuss feelings and emotions? My father was an incredibly gentle, kind, loving man. My father was English. Um, he was actually a Jewish war refugee. Uh, his family had gotten out of Austria, uh, but he had come to England as a toddler. So he was completely culturally English. He had an English accent, he had all the rest of that. And he'd been raised in that, you know, his family very much wanted to fit in in England. Uh, so he was more English than the English. <laughs> With all of the stereotype, stereotypes of middle-class manners and politeness. I never heard, my, my father died at 71. I never heard him yell. Wow. Um, as many people in the family pointed out, my father died of stomach cancer. Mm. Uh, and a lot of people who loved him said very gently, said very lovingly, he kept it all inside. Anything negative, my father, my father would cry like if he saw a, a, you know, a movie. My dad would cry at movies, he would cry at commercials. But he never expressed really strong emotion. Um, he was constantly loving and affirming to everybody. Gentle, funny, self-deprecating, you know, sort of like, you know, a, you know, if you can imagine sort of a cross between Woody Allen and Hugh Grant. Um, <laughs> You know, it was, that was my dad and, and the best of both men, um, you know, and he was very loving and very physically affectionate. I think that what I didn't realize until much later on is my dad had a lot of doubts and insecurities and he had a lot of trauma the way that we now understand is, you know, with Holocaust survivors, you know, that kind of trauma. And he just kept it all inside. So I never got to see him struggle. Mm. Dad, dad was always affirming, but he couldn't tell me how to get through something. You know, um, even though he had gone through those things, I think it was, it was difficult for that, for him. Uh, so I loved him desperately, but I always felt like I had all of these towering emotions and feelings and, and rages that he would never understand. In reality, he would have understood them, you know, of course, if, but... I was sort of a little in awe of his gentleness, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. So do you think his behavior influenced your view on what masculinity is and, and the stigma around how men deal with their depression or suicide today? I, I do. I mean, in a way that, you know, that, that, that's an, you know, I mean, there's, there's sort of the, you know, there's the macho, American way. And then there's sort of the, you know, with my father, this sort of very, you know, middle-class English way, educated English way, that it was not necessarily any healthier um, because it, it deflected a lot with humor. Um, you know, it was very funny, always self-deprecating. You know, there was always, it was always, you know, a gentleman always puts himself down. He never puts down other people. You know, if I was, if I insulted anyone else, my father would get my father, again, he didn't get furious, but my father would make it very clear that we don't do that. If you have an insult, you direct it inward. You know, so you make fun of yourself. Um, and that's what you do. Uh, so that, you know, that, that for me, being, being a man was all wrapped up in being sort of the perfect gentleman. And the perfect gentleman is, is actually really a tough guy because people can insult him and call him names and he doesn't lose his cool. He doesn't necessarily get into a fight. I mean, he's not, he's a lover, not a fighter, but he's charming and he just doesn't get emotional. He just doesn't. Um, 
That's just not how we are. Uh, there was almost a class issue to this. I mean, they sort of, you know, they, well, you know, there are, there are these vulgar, uneducated people who can't help themselves. It's, it's terribly, it's terrible, it's terrible. They do this, you know, it, it's um, uh, this, but we're better than that. <laughs> it's tough, let me tell you. I've, I've, I've gone through it myself, it's tough. So personally, I have severe depressive disorder that's reoccurring, which my doctor told me was the root of my addictive behavior, which, thank God, has been curtailed. And I'm sure that the abuse I grew up with within my family was involved with my condition. Did In your family, was there any evidence of any kind of abuse physically, mentally, emotionally, verbally? No, not in my family of origin. I think, you know, that, 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 I mean, my parents divorced when I was young and that was very hard on me. I mean, I think that one of the things I've come to realize is that, you know, trauma can happen in so many different ways. You, you don't need to yell at a child or hit a child or abuse a child. Um, I don't know where I got this idea of not being good enough, um, but I did, you know, and it's, and then, the trauma that happened to me, you know, I, as a teenager, I sought out trauma. Uh, you know, it's not in my bio, but it's, it's, I talk about this a lot with people now. When I was 17, I started, you know, selling myself for sex to older men. Um, and part of that was just the desperate need for attention. And some of it was really interesting and fun. And some of it was really traumatic. A lot of really, as you can imagine, a lot of ugly stuff happens. But part of it was, you know, honestly, I felt so out of place and I couldn't point to anything in my family of origin that would make me feel this way. So I literally went out and I got myself a story. You know, it, it, it's a strange thing to do, but I literally went out and I became a sex worker. But, I mean, I like the money, but a lot of it was, and I like sex, but it, a lot of it was really about I need, a, I need a story. I need a way to explain why my head is like this so that later on I could go, well, you know, well, of course you do this. You were sexually abused. But I wasn't sexually abused in my family of origin. I went out and created a scenario, you know, where this abuse would happen. I own that. But I did it because I had to have a story. There was nothing my mother did or my father did that would account for this much pain. Yeah, one thing I write about in my book is that when, whether it's depression or any mental health issue is suppressed and it's not checked, that's when risky behavior shows up. Alcoholism, drug addiction, pill addiction, stealing, fighting others, sexual acting out, violence, etc. And that's that's really a central theme to my message to people, especially men who have a tough time talking about their emotions and their feelings to other men and gaining trust so you know they can ask for help, talk to their primary care physician, get a referral to a therapist, and they can start working on themselves and and slowly hopefully improve. Um, 
When do you think you were challenged by a mental health issue or depression or something like that? And I think I'm very loving emotional dad. Uh, I am definitely not, I mean, I, I, I don't think I, I'm, this is no big surprise here to anyone who knows my family. Uh, in the good cop, bad cop thing, I'm, I'm not the disciplinarian. My, my kid's mom, my ex-wife is, 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 a, is a very strict mom. She's a wonderful mom. She's real strict. Uh, and I tend to be, you know, I tend to, I mean, my kids know that I'm very, very loving. I tend to be prone to anxiety. I have problems disciplining. You know, one thing I'd like to get better at uh, is setting boundaries. It's really like a lot of us who struggle with addictions and the rest of it. It's, I can barely set boundaries for myself. So the idea of setting boundaries for other people is slightly preposterous. Um, so, you know, I, I, I really struggle with that. Yeah. It's an ongoing thing. But one thing my kids know is how much I love them. I'm physically and verbally affectionate and I'm present. Um, even if I tend to get all flustered when, you know, some situation arises, uh, there's no doubt that I love them. And I do. Well, having gone through what you've gone through, to be a father like that is very impressive. And I just congratulate you on that because it's a tough job. And it's the toughest job in the world. Yeah. You know, we all have tough experiences leading up to that. Yep. So tell our audience what you've learned from your experiences with addiction and mental illness. I think that it's really important. I guess what I, where I am now is it's really important to accept that this is a process and not an event recovery uh, and that you are going to have good days and bad days. Um, what I've found so destructive about certain parts of the, you know, 12 step community is that there's this enormous pressure to pretend that everything's okay. <laughs> uh, and again, this, this whole habit of saying, you know, it's like it's like the song Amazing Grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. That's not how it works. I once was lost, then I was found, then I got lost again, then I got found again. Lost, found, lost, found. That's the real way it works. It's not like some, you know, conversion experience for some evangelical Christian where you were in darkness and now you're in perpetual light. But there's still all this rhetoric around that that's so destructive. You know, even after you've been redeemed, you're still going to have darkness. There will always be darkness. You will never get past darkness because it's what it means to be human. You're going to have more and more light, but you're still going to have darkness if you're in a body. And so it's just being really open about this. And so, you know, so I can say to my kids, yeah, you know, I'm here, I'm present. I'm, I, you know, I'm, I have this, um, you know, wonderful relationship with, a, with my fiance. Um, and, you know, I'm a faithful, you know, devoted boyfriend, fiance, I guess I would say. Um, and, you know, I, I have this job where I show up and, and I do all these things, but there's still a lot of darkness in my head. And maybe there always will be. And I'm still going to get frantic and flustered. And I'm still going to have days where these crazy thoughts of self-destruction go through my head. And it's not proof that the program isn't working. It's not proof that we're not in recovery. 
Mental health is not the absence of any negativity. It's the tools to live through the negativity, knowing that it will recede and you'll be okay five minutes from now, five days from now. But there's so much pressure to use this conversion language. I was lost, now I'm found. And I can't go back to being lost again because I'll be humiliated. <laughs> That's gotta stop. That has got to freaking stop because that is the most destructive thing. I agree with you. You know, I was just talking about it in a meeting the other day about it's like, for me, it's like you got this brick wall that water's coming out of all different places and you try and stop one burst of water. And then over here, there's another one that comes out and, you know, trying to deal with that emotional sobriety is such a challenge. Right. And, and, you know, we get triggers and other people and it, it's, that's life in session, you know? Exactly. So you've had uh, quite a, quite a life. What, what do you see in your future? What, 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 what's your vision going forward? Well, you know, I'm wide open. I mean, it, it's in a way I, I'm eager to see my, to continue to see my kids grow up. Um, I'm engaged to be married next year. Uh, and I'm excited for that. I'm excited for what, you know, what the world's going to hold. Um, one thing that I have learned, you know, I've losing, you know, a career, you know, having, you know, been homeless, uh, dealt with addiction, been hospitalized, gone to jail, all that stuff that happened in my life is I've learned that I really do have the tools now to survive. That life is really interesting and I can always find a way through as long as I, you know, continue to reach out and, and practice the principles. I will get through. I'm going to have good days and bad days. The darkness will come. We're going to get through this. Um, you know, and it's, it's really, it's really helpful, especially right, you know, you know, with right now, because of all the, you know, the chaos between COVID and the election, people are really wound up uh, in America right now and around the world, you know, and understandably so. It's a really scary time for the planet. Um, and I, but I think that, you know, because of what I've gone through and guys like us have gone through, we have resources that we can draw on that, uh, that you know, with respect, I, I don't like this word, but I'm going to use it, normies or civilians <laughs> can't, you know, because they haven't been through that. They haven't been, and it's okay, you know. So they get really worked up. What if Trump does this? What if the COVID cases go here? What if this is, and uh, these are serious things. I'm not minimizing it. It's just that <laughs> we've seen some shit, you know, and we, we know we will get through this. We don't always know how, but we know we will. Um, and like a lot of, us, you know, the more crazy things get in the world, you know, almost the more calmer I feel. Uh, it's when things are really, you know, really too calm that I start looking around like, what is going on? Something. Like that. <laughs> but when you've got what's going on in the news right now, I feel pretty calm. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to whatever happens. Um, good. 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 All right. One last question. Personally, how do you view what how do you describe masculinity? You know, I think that for me, being masculine 
is about leading a life of service. You know, at, at its core, it's service. Um, you know, my grandmother used to say, a gentleman makes other people feel comfortable. And I, I, I'm not quite sure I'd use just that language. That's a, that's a, that's a more limited thing than I would have, but I, 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 it still really, really is part of me, that, that, that idea. I'm here to take, I'm here to help. I'm here to take care of people. Um, you know, as men, you know, one of the things about having had children is it's like, whether she, whether she has children or not, a woman's body can give life in a way that a man's can't. You know, there is this power that women's bodies have that we don't have. It, 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 you know, this is going to probably piss some people off, but it's in women's nature. That's extraordinary creative power. Um, and this enormous power to love and nurture. I don't have that, but I can serve that. It doesn't mean being a doormat to women. That's not what I'm talking about with service. It, it, it's with my relationship with men. It's my relationship with my, with my ex-wife, with my mother, with my brother, with my, you know, I, I'm literally in a customer service job at Trader Joe's with my coworkers, um, with my customers, you know, with everybody. It doesn't, and if I'm going to really be of service, I have to take care of myself. You know, this is, this is the thing, you know, if I don't eat and I don't sleep and I don't get some time alone, I'm going to be faking being of service. And in about 20 minutes, I'm going to bite your head off. And that's <laughs> definitely not service. You know, I did not serve you when I was rude to you or said something, or we don't bite the head off like in my dad's way of like, just a really cutting remark, you know, that's not service. Yeah. So to be of service means I must take self-care so that I can serve. So, you know, and to be, and to be, and to be, not just a gentleman, but a gentle man, and a gentle man who brings peace into the world, uh, and and does his best to start with peace with himself. That's what it means to be masculine to me. I concur. I concur. Well, everybody can see that Hugo's story is quite remarkable. Uh, a very brave man of courage, and we're honored to have you on the podcast today. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? Um, well, I'm really sorry about how Manchester United has been doing. <laughs> I just want to express my condolences. Um, as, uh, 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 like some mutual friends we've had in the past, uh, I'm a Spurs fan. So it's, um, there we go. I'm sorry. Uh, no, I, other, than, other than that aside, uh, I, I so appreciate the work you're doing, Tim. And, uh, you know, it's, this is really important stuff. And... We need to share this with as many men as possible because we need we need healthy masculine energy in the world. You know, one of the things we're realizing in this culture is that women have been caring a lot, you know, and they're tired of carrying that and they're tired of taking care of us and wiping our metaphorical butts. Um, we got to do we got to do our part and take care of ourselves. It's hard work. Well, I look forward to continuing our dialogue and moving forward so I can learn from you and I can help others. So thanks again, Hugo. Thank you, Tim. Listeners, please look out for our podcast, Time Out for Mental Health, wherever you get your podcasts, and keep your eyes out for my upcoming book, You Don't Have to Swallow Your Gun, simple book for men about depression, masculinity, and suicide. Please contact me for speaking engagements and men's relationship coaching or consulting through my website, timcrass.com. And don't forget to have fun, everybody. <laughs>